strong person, you know what I'm saying? But it's like, to be in a shelter takes away your independence, your, you know what I mean? Right. The, you know, the ability to wake up and breathe fresh air and not feel you're being told what to do and what time to get up and sleeping on green mattresses, it's, it's, it's hard out here, but to me it's worth it. Yeah. Because of the independence. The only thing that we don't have is, you know, privacy and, you know, sometimes, you know, getting water's hard. $243 million, how many buildings would that fix? $243 million is a lot of money. Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Review. Today, it's Friday, February 26th, 2016. Uh, that was just a clip uh, from folks from the Coalition on Homelessness. There were sweeps that were uh, expected to happen and kind of have been happening a little bit, um, including folks um, set up in tents on Division and 13th, and people were staying there overnight to kind of make sure that this didn't happen. Uh, since the Super Bowl, and yes, before, the DPW and SFPD have been kind of going along and clearing away people's tents and possessions. These are people who are living on the street, and it's pretty heinous and disgusting. And so uh, activists and community organizers have been going out and doing what they can to prevent this from happening. It's it's pretty... Everyone in the city recognizes that what's going on is, is a problem and people deserve to have their basic needs met. And when money is going to organizations that end up uh, you know, being a danger to the people on the streets, that's, that's really terrible. And uh, I was, I've been watching a, a dog who's currently sitting on my lap right now uh, named Rosie, and we were walking uh, in the mission couple days ago and I met a woman named Mama D who is, has uh, some belongings set up on South Van Ness and she was saying that a lot of her possessions had been stolen and when you're in the position where you're you're there just watching your your items I guess as it were um, you don't have a lot of op- like options as to where you can go and what you can do and her husband was currently in the hospital so she didn't want to like be gone or leave in case he was coming back um, to, to miss him and she, we talked for a while and she told me her story and you know she has a, has a bachelor's degree and was a nurse for years and was helping people out and was a very much uh, a caretaker and was really taking care of people and also just very much aware of how you know just much more I would say uh, awake than a lot of a lot of folks out there just in terms of how the systems are set up and how you know she had a nine-to-five and that really felt very limiting in a lot of ways and there are sometimes I feel and a lot of other folks feel that the, the options we're given are not there's this illusion of oh if you just do this then everything will be okay um, or there's an, an illusion of freedom in a way and granted there are some things here that um, other folks don't have in this in, the, in other countries however the the options are there seems to be a lot but there's really there's really not in terms of places that that are hiring and the places where people um, are able to find work and to make a living wage, especially in the city, is very difficult. So, uh, yeah, we, we talked a lot, and I've always, I can't say always, but for a long time just been very aware of there's just the, the criminalization of the poor in this country and in this city is uh, just so sad and uh, frustrating and uh, it's makes it should make us all very angry and beyond that one should should do something and people are doing something which is great 
and I appreciate it when folks, uh, Amy Fairweiss has organized the uh, St. Francis Homelessness uh, Challenge, which is to find solutions. Uh, since people in City Hall, not only are they not finding solutions, but they're making the problem worse uh, a lot of the time. Uh, it's up to us to really find the solutions to make sure everyone is accounted for and everyone is taken care of, because it's very easy to complain about it, um, and it just takes uh, just a little bit of added energy and time to go ahead and to to plan how to, to change things, and also just to interact with people, just to interact with people and get their story and understand, you know, where they're coming from. Uh, so, um, uh, here with this little, this little chihuahua named Rosie here on my lap and had some sad news, uh, a couple days ago, uh, a friend and teammate of mine, uh, Jessica DeGeorge passed away, uh, unexpectedly and got the news, uh, Wednesday night. And that's been very, difficult to to handle uh she was very well loved i was on a team with her for a couple years and and got to know her and of course uh was planning on getting to know her even better throughout the coming years uh, she was very supportive and very strong and she was a great player and every time i was on stage with her i always felt safe uh, i always felt supported and she was just fun and good-natured and optimistic and full of energy and a really wonderful person to be around and it still feels like it's a shock in a way and i found with just experiencing grief over the last few months uh lost a couple friends so now it's it's like three within a few months uh it really comes in waves and someone had mentioned that to me that there are some days when uh, i recognize it and i feel it and then other days when it really hits me it's like very very heavy and uh it's incomprehensible and of course you know death is is certain one expects especially when folks are are young and in their mid to late 20s that they will live on a lot longer so uh it just feels uh very it's very difficult and one thing that i i will say is that i'm grateful for the, the improv community um with all of its its issues uh it's the improv community as a whole certainly uh people do will find ways to be there for one another and the be, to be able to grieve uh in a group is very healing and that makes things that much easier to know that one isn't alone especially in terms of remembering someone and being able to be there for each other and to share the space together oh so uh yeah just uh taking some time and thinking about that and she was a great person and there's that the anger of course too when it's these really kind generous souls who go way too soon and there are still these fascists out there uh in positions of power or not positions of power but the ones who are in positions of power i find to be scarier and they're still out being heard and people who really did spread love and kindness are are not here right now at least in in body and that's just so angry and i guess there's that the the seven stages of grief is it seven or ten i think it's seven um the yeah that one of them's like bargaining and just the there's denial i know there's a, there's a few different ones and i feel you can of course one hops back between between the number of them and it's never it's never ending it's never ending um 
And I feel like our, our culture also, American culture, is very repressed in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways. How how many ways? Let me count the ways. There's a, there's numerous ways in terms of our bodies, in terms of sexuality, um, in terms of basic care for everybody, in terms of respecting the environment. And a lot of, you know, a lot of folks do uh, oh, incarceration, uh, law enforcement. There's a lot of things that are problematic. Uh, academia in, in some ways. Um, space privatization. Oh, man. What was my point? Oh, things that are problematic. That's another theme of the show. Uh, oh, repression. Repression in our culture. And in terms of emotion, that's one thing, too. And death, this denial of death, and also this fascination with it, with our, oh, and the military, and, like, violence. There's a big fascination with violence. Somehow violence is okay, and sexuality isn't in our culture. Ugh. This idea that it's, I feel just the idea that everyone wears masks in a way to, I keep on saying in a way, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop that. We wear masks to perhaps cover our feelings or to cover our true selves or to fit in. Sometimes one isn't allowed to be their, their true selves. If you speak your voice and it's either not heard, not welcomed, or you're made fun of, or you're ridiculed, and you still want to fit in, one has to perhaps alter uh, this, their, their pers- not their pers- perspective, but what they express. And uh, death is something that certainly goes along with that. If we live in a culture that doesn't allow people to emote, to be angry, to be sad, to be frustrated, maybe we do to some extent allow people to. Uh, it's uh, for the media does, and it's kind of sensationalized. It's not really looked looked upon. A, with the the roots of what's causing the depression or the anxiety or the frustration if those were looked upon and actually addressed then i feel like those those problems would begin to we could solve them uh people are sad and depressed because they might not have their basic needs met or there might be they might be in an abusive situation um or they might be being hassled by the cops they might not feel safe leaving the home they might have a loved one in prison they might have a loved one uh, in the military overseas, there are so many reasons why things, it goes beyond life being unfair. The systems are in place to keep people down, to keep people frustrated, and to feel powerless, and to keep people apart from one another. I think that's a big thing, too. Even at work, you're going away to a, a place for our, our, you know, majority of the week. I said, you know, again. Uh, people are kind of pushed away. Families are pushed away from from each other and friends are pushed away from each other and people are separated from one another and we separate ourselves and I haven't even gotten to the news yet and I'm already bumming myself out it's it's we need to find ways to a new way of living in a new way of existing uh, communally more so and being there for each other more on that note we should probably get started with the news. We have a guest calling in, and that's Ken Folks. Ken Folks is one of the founders of the Spectrum Queer Media Open Mic, which happens every Tuesday at Perch Coffee House in Oakland on Grand. Uh, it's a wonderful space, and it's not so much an open mic as a love share space. People are welcome to bring poetry, spoken word, comedy, music, dance, film, uh, talk about protests and any actions that are coming up. It's really a very warm space, and it's not. It's a space that's has always felt welcoming 
to me and i encourage folks to to come check it out people from out of town come by all the time and i've met so many great people there a lot of the people I, I really love I've met at this space and I'm so fortunate it exists. So Ken folks will be calling in around one o'clock today and we're very much looking forward to talking to them. <sighs> so there's some news going on. Uh, started off a little bit about the, the homelessness issue here in, in San Francisco and there will be some more of, of that. Uh, I wanted to talk about capitalism i'm not a fan of it when molly was here on the show we would not quite have arguments but i was just very much uh uh opposed to it and thinks it's it's very it's a very problematic system and a lot of people agree one of them happens to be stephen hawking so this article came out uh, very recently this was coming out on this was okay it's actually not terribly recent so there we go but it still holds true and stephen hawking says we should really be scared of capitalism not robots if machines produce everything we need the outcome will depend on how things are distributed and this is from october of of last year so it's a little bit it's a little bit old but it's still true right and the author of this is alexander c kaufman Machines won't bring about the economic robot apocalypse, but greedy humans will, according to physicist Stephen Hawking. In a Reddit Ask Me Anything session on Thursday, the scientist predicted that economic inequality will skyrocket as more jobs become automated and the rich owners of machines refuse to share their fast profiteering wealth. If machines produce everything we need, the outcome will depend on how things are distributed. Everyone can enjoy a life of luxurious leisure if the machine-produced wealth is shared, or most people can end up miserably poor if the machine owners successfully lobby against wealth redistribution. So far, the trend seems to be toward the second option, with technology driving ever-increasing inequality. Essentially, machine owners will become the bourgeoisie of the new era, in which the corporations, they won't, own, they won't provide jobs to actual human workers. As it is, the chasm between the super-rich and the rest is growing. For starters, capital, such as stocks or property, accrues value at a much faster rate than the actual economy grows, according to the French economist uh, Thomas Piketty. The wealth of the rich multiplies faster than wages increase, and the working class can never even catch up. But if Hawking is right, the problem won't be about catching up. It'll be a struggle to even inch past the starting line. Ooh, that's some happiness. I've had, when folks comment on the show, uh, and people do, the one reaction I get is that it makes people feel sad, and I recognize that. Uh, it's, it's the truth, though. So I'd rather have a true sad show than a, a happy fake show. And it does get happy and funny at points when there are positive things that happen. And I have a, oh, wait, that wasn't a positive story. I did have a positive, oh, this one, the next one will be kind of positive. Yeah, the positive bent. There are some positive, there are definitely, there are definitely good things happening. And I think the news tends to under or underreport them and or not report them at all. And part of that's for fear mongering. And also, if you don't hear about good people doing good work then that would that would you know obviously that would encourage people to do more good work and to help each other out more so that's i think that's part of the reason and it's also maybe not sensationalistic you don't want to hear about or you know some people don't want to hear about something positive happening it's more doom and gloom and fear and fear here we're talking about tech and there's living in a very tech heavy city and the tech heavy world right now 
there are folks doing some good stuff and this is good because it's fighting the powers that be and this is from forbes i don't usually read forbes but this article seemed to really uh this is okay so here we go it's from forbes a uh, new app lets you boycott Coke brothers monsanto and more by scanning your shopping cart and this is from claire o'connor in her keynote speech uh this is this is a little bit old that seems to be a theme of the show, finding news that's not quite as recent. But we'll get to some more recent news. Uh, in her keynote speech at last year's annual Netroots Nation gathering, uh, Darcy Berner pitched a seemingly simple idea to the thousands of bloggers and web developers in the audience. The former Microsoft programmer and congressional candidate proposed a smartphone app allowing shoppers to swipe barcodes to check whether conservative billionaire industrialists Charles and David Koch were behind a product on the shelves. Burner figured the average supermarket shopper had no idea that buying brawny paper towels, Angel Soft toilet paper, or Dixie cups meant contributing cash to Coke Industries through its subsidiary, Georgia Pacific. Similarly, purchasing a pair of yoga pants containing uh, Lycra or a stain master carpet meant indirectly handing the Cokes your money. Coke Industries bought Invista, one of the world's largest fiber and textiles companies in 2004 from DuPont. At the time, Berner created a mock interface for her app, but that's as far as she got. She was waiting to find the right team to build out the back end, which could be complicated given often murky corporate ownership structures. She wasn't aware that as she delivered her Netroot speech, a group of developers was hard at work on Bicot, an even more sophisticated version of the app she proposed. I remember reading Forbes' story on the proposal on the proposed app to help boycott Coke Industries and wishing that we were ready to launch our product, says said Bicot's marketing director, um, Masio Martinez. The app itself is the work of one Los Angeles-based 26-year-old freelance programmer, Ivan Pardo, who has devoted the last 16 months to Bicot. It's been completely bootstrapped up to this point, he said. Martinez and another friend have pitched in to promote the app. Pardo's handiwork is available for download on iPhone or Android, making its debut on iTunes and Google uh, Play uh, and Google Play in early May. And this was last May. So it should be out there, everybody. You can scan the barcode on any product, and the free app will trace its ownership all the way to its top corporate parent company, including conglomerates like Coke Industries. Once you've scanned an item, Bicot will show you its corporate family tree on your phone screen. Scan a box of Splenda Sweetener, for instance, and you'll see its parent, McNeil Nutritionals, is a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson. And they're not great. Even more impressively, you can join user-created campaigns to boycott business practices that violate your principles rather than single companies. One of these campaigns, Demand GMO Labeling, will scan your box of cereal and tell you if it was made by one of the 36 corporations that donated more than $150,000 to oppose the mandatory labeling of genetically modified food. Deciding to add that campaign to your boycott app might make buying your breakfast Nearly impossible. And as a side note, I feel that all the time when I go into a supermarket and I look at these the options of the companies that own these cereals. Uh, as that list includes not just headline grabbers like agricultural giant Monsanto, but just about every big consumer company with a presence in the supermarket aisle. Coca-Cola, Nestle. Fucking hate Nestle. Oh, I've got a good story about Nestle getting sued. There's something positive. Uh, Kraft, Heinz, Kellogg's, Unilever, ugh, and more. 
Bycott is still working on adding new data to its back end and fine-tuning its information on corporate ownership structures. Most companies in the current database actually own more brands than Bycott has on record. The developers are asking shoppers to help improve their technology by inputting names of products they scan that the app doesn't already recognize. And if this all sounds worthy but depressing, <laughs> be assured that your next trip to the supermarket needn't be all doom and gloom. There are Bycott campaigns encouraging shoppers to support brands that have, say, openly backed LGBT rights. You can scan a bottle of Absolute Vodka or a bag of Starbucks coffee beans and learn that both companies have come out for equal marriage. This is clearly from a few years ago. I don't want to push any single point of view with the app said Pardo. For me, it was a critical, it was critical to allow users to create campaigns because I don't think it's Bicot's role to tell people what to buy. We simply want to provide a platform that empowers consumers to make well-informed purchasing decisions. Forbes reached out to Coke Industries and Monsanto for comment and will update this story with any responses. Update. Tuesday's traffic surge is causing some problems for Bicot. Oh, okay. They're working to fix the issues. Update 2. Prado has had to temporarily remove the Android app from the store to fix glitches. And this was from a while ago. So perhaps it's up and running again. And this is great. This is what we need. If you're going to work in the tech industry, work really finding ways to help people and to make sure that people are not contributing to already evil companies. I promised a positive st Oh, my gosh. The next one on my screen is super negative and depressing. Hmm. What shall we do? Should I do the positive one or the negative one? Well, this one's here. We're going to do it. And then I'll play some music. And uh, then we'll get back with some positive stories. So we'll have the, the medicine first and then the dessert. Is that an expression? It is now. So this comes from, comes from The Advocate. And as a trans person, I definitely am aware of what's going on as much as one can be within the, the transgender community. And there's, of course, a lot of violence. And a lot of violence that's discussed is... Um, about trans women and there's not as much discussed about trans men and this article talks about that a little bit and this is from the advocate and uh, it's called making sense out of the murders of trans men this is from the the advocate and it was written by mitch calloway and this was very recent this is february 16th 2016 Whew. Three weeks ago, the body of trans man F. Hilario was found on an isolated road in Parana, Brazil. The 20-year-old was discovered deceased with apparent head injuries by, by a passerby. The location, according to local newspaper Parana, is notorious among local residents as a dumping ground for murder victims. Hilario had been reported missing a day before. The man who found Hilario's body called the police to report that a boy had been that a boy was murdered. Official reports instantly described Hilario as a male murder victim, leading Parana to correctly refer to Hilario as a boy. But the newspaper explains in a note that an expert in quotation marks later informed reporters that Hilario was a girl. The paper's article was updated to use female pronouns and is still currently misgenders the young trans man. News of his murder reached the U.S. through Eduarda Ellis Santos, a Portuguese trans woman and reporter for Planet Transgender, who translates the local news report. Without her seeking out and translating Brazilian newspapers, it's exceedingly likely that Western media would not be aware of Hilario's misgendering, or of his murder at all. News of Hilario's death comes two months after the world learned of the brutal murder of Yoshi Tuchida in Tokyo. The 38-year-old trans man was found dead, draped in a blanket, with his head in a plastic bag and his face skinned off with a knife, according to 
Agents France Press. His body was reportedly found by his adopted adult daughter, herself a transgender woman, in the suburban home they shared. The pair had a possible history of domestic violence, but it remains unclear whether she is a suspect in his murder. Local media misgendered Juchita's daughter while lingering sensationally um, on the gory details of his demise. Prior to Hilario and Tuchita's deaths, the last known murder of a trans man was Evan Young on New Year's Day 2013. Young was a 22-year-old black Milwaukee rapper who was tortured, shot repeatedly, burned, and then thrown in a trash bin during what was likely a gang initiation ritual, according to authorities. Local media claimed Young's murder had nothing to do with his trans status, yet a friend of the victim informed trans advocate that he believes Young was initially beaten, then mutilated and murdered with hateful brutality when his quote-unquote female body was discovered. In the course of reporting this article, the world learned about the officer-involved killing of 24-year-old Caden Clark in Mesa, Arizona. Clark, a white autistic trans man who had just recently come out via YouTube via YouTube video diary, was being checked on uh, by uh, police after expressing suicidal intentions to a friend. Police, who fatally shot Clark when he reportedly moved toward, toward them with a knife, are now being accused of excessive force. Clark had been widely misgendered in national press. What, if anything, can these four mortars tell us about fatal violence against trans men? What can we observe from these most recent murders? What can we speculate about the response to these cases? Very little is currently known about violence against trans men as a whole. Murder, as a subset of this topic, is even more shrouded in mystery. How often are trans men murdered worldwide? Are any of these cases hate crimes? What are the risk factors? Are there more murders we aren't hearing about? How can we prevent more deaths? While it's impossible to draw conclusions from these four cases, which are almost entirely, which, which are almost certainly only a fraction of the total murders committed, that should not stop anti-violence advocates from considering the issue. Um, okay. Um, but it's impossible to draw conclusions from these four cases, which are almost certainly only a fraction of the total murders committed that should not stop anti-violence advocates from considering the issue. The safest place to start is simply making open-ended observations about what we know and indicating paths for further inquiry. From that space, we can hopefully initiate a conversation with others that others will carry forward, informed by their own experiences and expertise. So here's what we know about the murders of trans men. Three of the last five known murder victims are trans men of color. Any mention of fatal violence against trans men in most circles, trans or cisgender, non-trans alike, is likely to conjure up one single name, Brandon Tina. The white, rural, 21-year-old trans man was raped and murdered in Humboldt, Nebraska in 1993, and his tragic death was immortalized in the acclaimed 1999 film Boys Don't Cry. For better or for worse, the popular culture status of Tina's story has lent it to has lent it a singular dominance, effectively rep rep representing the face of American trans male murder victim ever since. Its seeming rarity has, over time, led some LGBT activists to conclude that Tina's case was an anomaly, a fluke, rather than a single incident that could just as easily be part of a much broader, if unpublicized, incidence of sexual assault and physical violence against trans men. It must be noted that, for a number of reasons, the equally brutal murder of black trans man Evan Young a decade later did not garner the attention that Tina's murder did. 
As Black Lives Matter activists have been consistently pointing out, America's institutional disregard for the lives of black men is well documented. It manifests in myriad ways, including a quicker uh, slackening of media coverage of black men's murders, if there is coverage at all, and an astronomical incarceration rate. This suffocating silence grows exponentially more potent when expanded to include LGB and especially trans people of color. The fact that three recently identified trans male murder victims were all men of color is central to understanding why we don't know more about this issue. Our communal ignorance is further compounded by how little we know about acts of potentially fatal violence towards trans men. The most recent known cases being those of Salvadorian trans man Aldo Alexander Pena, beaten unconscious by police following a pride parade, Williams Apaco, and James Malucha, two Ugandan trans men beaten outside a sports bar, and black Georgia trans man Kai Peterson, who is currently serving 20 years in prison for killing his attacker in self-defense. Two of the last known trans men murdered were from non-Western countries. Here in the U.S., uh, trans activism tends to be Western-centric. While this isn't surprising, it also tends to shape the way we understand issues like violence against trans men. While hard data or any part of the American uh, trans community is hard, is hard to come by, anecdotal evidence and this author's lived experience belies a tendency to assume a relative level of safety for trans men. Compared to the rest of the world, American trans men are more likely to have access to transition-related health care and therefore pass more quickly as male in public, reducing their chances of becoming targets, or so the logic goes. Like most generalizations, this one is based on a lot of truth, but it also leaves uh, unsaid the starkly different reality for many trans men who cannot or do not wish to pass as traditionally male, who are poor, who are rural or isolated, who are denied transition-related medical care, or whose trans status is known or suddenly uncovered within hostile environments. Consequently, any conclusions from such a generalization are tenuous at best. But this much we know. The low reported levels of physical violence against trans men in the U.S. tends to keep trans rights activists looking elsewhere for issues to remedy, particularly when resources are limited. And the issue we aren't actively looking for is an issue that remains invisible. The lack of evidence then confirms an unspoken bias toward assuming it's not an <coughs> it's not an issue at all, but simply a curious anomaly. Yet, knowing that an American trans man, a Brazilian trans man, and a Japanese trans man were killed in the past three months should at least pique our communal interest. The fact that Hilario's case came to American readers only through the intrepid eye and translation of a bilingual journalist who herself is trans naturally prompts curiosity about what other transphobic atrocities are flying under the English-speaking community's radar. <coughs> the two most recent known trans male murder victims, Caden Clark and F. Hilario, were misgendered by local press. Much of our understanding about how police and media treat trans murder victims comes from cases of trans women. The murders of trans women worldwide and particularly women of color are at epidemic proportions, and we receive communal knowledge about them at a rate of roughly 200 to every one known murder of a trans man. Trans man. The statistical reality justifies the trans-feminine focus on many broader discussions of fatal violence against trans people. But since risk factors facing these, district, these distinct parts of the trans community are unique, there is likewise value in digging for answers from individual cases to stem the tide of fatal violence against trans-masculine, trans-feminine, and non-binary people. 
the common misgendering of trans murder victims obscures any remotely accurate numbers we could quote about the actual prevalence of this phenomenon. Police reports, from which most reporters obtain initial information about a death, routinely refer to murder victims by their biological sex, rather than asserting um, ascertaining a victim's true gender. Tragically, this means we can surmise that there are countless more trans murder victims who will never be known to us, particularly without friends, family, or local activists intervening, or reporters choosing to dig a little deeper. This number undoubtedly includes some trans men, and the number could rise if we consider that more and more trans people are coming out at a younger age. Hilario's case is particularly instructive since we can observe that police initially gendered the victim based on his masculine presentation and told the local newspaper he was a boy. The clothing that victims are found wearing is often one of the few early visible indications that a person may not have identified with their biological sex. This plays out repeatedly in in countless uh, media reports that inaccurately describe a murdered trans woman as a quote-unquote man in a dress. Sometimes the mismatch between body shape and expected gender presentation leads reporters or local activists to dig deeper and discover a victim's trans identity. But for trans men, the chances of such a search occurring are less likely since it is more socially acceptable for women to wear men's clothing. And women and men are in quotation marks. The reality that female-identified people often wear pants, button-down shirts, or other quote-unquote masculine attire decreases the likelihood that a reporter seeing these attributes on a police report about a death of someone identified as quote-unquote female would search for a more in-depth or more titillating scoop. Each news report about murdered trans men includes a hook beyond the victim's trans identity. The limited information we receive about trans murder victims is not objective reality. It is highly filtered through what both police and media outlets choose to report. Journalists must comb through all the day's potential news and discern what they consider newsworthy and what will garner sales and internet clicks for their publication. Because of this, the recent increased local reportage on the murders of trans people may not actually reflect an increase in violence, but rather an increase in perceived public interest in such stories. Observing the handful of trans men whose murders were reported by the press, each has some element that could easily be understood to catch a reporter's eye as they sift through the day's news pile. The shocking brutality of the murders of Evan Young and Yoshi Tochida is the first indication that their stories would sell. Prurient curiosity about gang initiation rituals or why a man's face would be skinned off uh, lent these stories... lent these stories greater general interest and objective newsworthiness. The fact that both men were, as many reports put it, quote-unquote, born female, became another sensationalistic detail for reader consumption. Young's identity as a rapper offered another point of interest that may have distinguished his story in the minds of reporters sifting through the days of news as did Tuchita's suspected history of domestic violence with his adult adopted child. In the case of Caden Clark, his story has multiple hooks, none of which involve him being transgender, a fact most exclusively noted in trans and LGBT-specific press, and brought to light online by trans activists. Most mainstream and local reports have focused on a viral video Clark produced last year, in which a service dog physically intervened as Clark, who suffered from Asperger syndrome, was hitting himself. Clark's death at the hands of police officers who had been called to his home when, uh, um, after a colleague requested a wellness check, 
fearing the 24-year-old may have been suicidal, uh, also carries a powerful resonance with an ongoing national conversation concerning police brutality and excessive use of force. F. Hilario notably did not have his case amplified to the global U.S. to the global or U.S. national press. Coverage of his death is limited to one city newspaper, Parana, and one U.S. trans-focused news outlet, Planet Transgender, which happens to have Portuguese-speaking reporter on staff. His case was presumably of interest to local reporters because most murders are when uh, because. Most murders are when the outlet is at a smaller city level. Growing awareness of a recent rash of anti-trans violence occurring in Brazil may also have contributed to Hilario's story being covered, since each new murder of a trans person within a short time span becomes of heightened interest. Notable, too, is that Brazil reports far more murders of trans people, most of whom are women, each year relative to its size than any other country worldwide. Given this, it seems likely that the country's reporters have cultivated a culture that systematically considers anti-trans violence more regularly newsworthy than other nations. As an introductory consideration to the issue of fatal violence against trans men, the observations and conjectures above are hardly exhaustive. But they do illustrate one conclusive point. There's far more about this topic that we just don't know yet. But even without comprehensive conclusions. Action steps can be devised to help guide us in where we go from here. Uh, check back tomorrow to find out what those steps could look like. And so again, this was written by uh, Mitch Kellaway. Um, uh, Mitch Kellaway is a white biracial queer trans man who works as a writer and editor. He spent the year as a... He spent the... <clears throat> He spent a year as the trans issues correspondent for advocate.com. He is the editor of Boys Do Cry, um, both on advocate, both in advocate.com essay series on violence towards trans men and forthcoming book from Homo Factus Press, and co-editor of Manning Up, Transsexual Men on Finding Brotherhood, Family, and Themselves, uh, an anthology of resilience, inspiring narratives by trans men. And you can be reached at mitchkelloway.com. Okay, so on that note, we'll play some music, and then we'll be back with some more news.
we're back with some quick stories before Ken Folks calls in. I promise there'd be a positive news story. We'll be getting to that. First of all, this is a disappointing news story. And this comes from Low Hud. Uh, patients struggle to get medical marijuana in New York. And I know this will affect a lot of people. A lot of people I know. And then a lot of people uh, on top of that. Disappointing. All right. Thousands of critically ill New Yorkers have struggled to access medical marijuana. And some doctors are saying State Department of Health failures are keeping the potentially life-saving drug out of reach. The state agency mishandled regulations on how doctors certify marijuana patients, including thousands in the lower Hudson Valley suffering from serious illnesses such as epilepsy and cancer. An investigation by the journal, um, by the journal news, Ihood uh, has found. Questions about conflicts, inaccurate statements, and botched dispensary openings have also mounted. One of the potential patients is five-year-old Vincent Piperito of Thiels, who has Dravet syndrome, a rare form of epilepsy. His mother, Dr. Amy Piperetto, uh, has been counting the days since New York enacted its medical marijuana law in 2014. She also tallies seizures that rack her son's body at 25 last year. Even though New York launched its medical marijuana program last month, Piperetto, an internist, hasn't found a doctor to certify Vincent. The state health department is refusing to release marijuana doctors' names, and legal gaps discourage health professionals from referrals. Piperato's most likely recourse is to sever ties with her son's lifelong physicians in favor of doctors willing to endanger their medical practice to recommend cannabis-based drugs. It's frustrating that we can't find a practitioner, especially while knowing that children in different states have full access to this medicine, she said. The way New York's law is written, there are so many barriers to access, from the doctor clar- from the doctor certification to the number of dispensaries. Meanwhile, New York has certified 1,174 marijuana patients out of a pool of estimated at more than 200,000 based on the number of people suffering from eligible illnesses. At 400 and 421 doctors in the state out of 90,000 have registered for the program as concerns mount about its legality. Although 22 other states allow doctors to certify marijuana patients, an apparent flaw in New York's program has some in the medical community concerned about federal legal troubles. Dr. Cheryl Hout, a top neurologist uh, at Montefiore Medical Center, cited the legal ambiguity surrounding New York's marijuana program as a major reason she refuses to certify patients. She fears that participating in the program would endanger her ability to prescribe other drugs? That's not a question mark. That's just how I read it. Uh, This just became an option in New York. And honestly, most of the epilepsy doctors I know are trying to understand what this means, Hout said. U.S. Senator uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, Democrat New York, weighed in on the high-stakes bet New York physicians are taking in certifying marijuana patients. They are putting themselves at risk, Gillibrand said. In New York, doctors are instructed by health department training and policy to recommend dosing as part of patient certification. By contrast, other states don't allow doctors to address dosing, leaving it up to the dispensaries where patients buy the drug. And also, a side note, it'd be interesting if they were to rewrite this article by calling it medicine instead of a drug. Same thing. Uh, the dosing issue is important because New York doctors may face federal penalties, huh? such as losing their U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration registration necessary to handle many prescription drugs. DEA officials would not discuss how the agency will address the situation, citing the fact that marijuana remains illegal under federal law. 
Ugh. It is designated alongside drugs without medicinal uses, including heroin. I'm going to just wait a moment there, the fact that marijuana and heroin are in the same category. Okay. Uh, the U.S. Uh, Food and Drug Administration has not approved marijuana as a medicine and has repeatedly concluded that smoked marijuana has a high potential for abuse, has no accepted medical use, that's not true, in the U.S., and lacks an acceptable level of safety for use, said James Hunt, DEA. Of course he works for the fucking DEA. DEA special agent in charge of New York. Well, he'd be out of a job if they made it legal. Let's just call it what it is. Health department officials would not answer questions about New York's program, which only allows non-smokable forms of the drug, such as oils and pills. Gillibrand and some New York doctors disagreed with the DEA chief's stance. She had proposed... She has proposed federal reforms to decriminalize marijuana for medicinal uses, which would resolve some of the concerns affecting New York's law. While pointing to systemic problems unique to New York, Gillibrand also blamed federal government inaction for the situation. The only delay is that too many people still put politics before people, she said. There is an old line of attack against marijuana left over from the 60s that it has no medicinal use, and it's just a, and it's just a hippie drug and can be a gateway drug. Dr. Laszlo Mechtler, director of the Dent Cannabis Clinic and Neurological Institute, is among the doctors in New York who have registered to participate in the program. The Dent Clinic, just outside Buffalo, has 10 doctors participating in the program, but they have been overwhelmed by the nearly 100 calls per day from patients seeking medical marijuana. Meckler describes New York's program as unrealistic for meeting demand. He urged state and federal action to address legal challenges blocking its expansion. In the meantime, while we want... Well, in the meantime, while we wait for the politicians to make decisions, what do we do for our suffering patients? He asked. I can't wait for a 12-year-old that has less than four months to live. This, that is my duty, to, re- to relieve that suffering. Uh, breach of disclosure. As concerns arise about patient access hurdles, uh, Elaine LLC, one of the five companies that began selling cannabis-based drugs last month, appears to have made inaccurate statements on its application that won a coveted license from the health department to grow and sell medical marijuana, a review of hundreds of pages of public records shows. Elaine and... Other companies also failed to open four of the 12 total dispensaries statewide by a January deadline. Elaine, based in Westchester County, seems to have improperly disclosed potential conflicts with JRP Group, the parent of Peckham, Peckham Industries, a politically active road construction business in White Plains. Application documents show Hillary Peckham, chief operating officer of Elaine, and other members of her family noted in the application that they had undisclosed ownership stakes in JRP. But Elaine answered no to questions about having connections to a business or organization that would be providing goods, leases, or services to uh, buy. Oh, that would be providing goods, lease, leases, or services to if valued uh, at $500 and above. A probe last year by the Journal News found that Peckham Industries spent nearly $1.5 million to buy about 400 acres in Chester, a town north of Lake George, that Elaine transformed into its medical marijuana manufacturing operation. Elaine officer, officials would not answer questions posed 
by the Journal News about the $500 threshold. The company also didn't address inconsistencies in how three Elaine employees answered questions requiring them to disclose prior management positions at the company's handling drugs. Elaine is managed by the female members of the Peckham family. However, it is a wholly separate company and is legally independent of JRP Group and its subsidiaries, Hillary Peckham wrote in an email. The Journal News, um, IHUD, uh, obtained Elaine's application through a, the state freedom of information law. It is difficult to determine the extent of connections <coughs> between um, Elaine and JRP because half of the 1,375 1, pages have been redacted. The health department cited privacy laws intended to protect trade secrets for withholding many of the pages. Elaine's application also seems to have inaccurately checked off that it had a building permit related to its plan to open a dispensary at 460 uh, Nepperhan Avenue in Yonkers. Eddie Ayala, a Yonkers City spokesman, said um, Elaine did not file for a building permit at that address. Elaine wouldn't address Ayala, Ayala's comment. It has yet to open a dispensary in Yonkers. The Peckham woman... Uh, the Beckham women formed this business after witnessing the need for the medication as a beloved member of our family suffered from ALS. Hillary Peckham wrote in an email, we have made every effort to bring the compassion and dedication that originally inspired us to enter the, this industry into our daily endeavors in Chestertown and the cities where we operate dispensaries of which Yonkers will be counted among soon. Meanwhile, uh, Westchester County only has one dispensary in downtown White Plains. Patients statewide have complained about having to drive hundreds of miles, sounds like an abortion clinic, uh, to reach dispensaries. Rockland and Putnam counties have no dispensaries. Advocacy groups want more sites and health department officials have said they are considering them along with a potential delivery service. Lower Hudson Valley patients' closest other dispensary options are in Kingston, 90 miles north of White Plains, and in Queens. State Health Commissioner Dr. Howard Zucker did not answer questions about potential inaccuracies in applications. Stephen Steenek, Chief Operating Officer of Good Green Group, LLC, one of 38 applicants that didn't receive a license to grow and sell medical marijuana in New York, said the health department has blocked his company's requests for a hearing to challenge the selection process. This is a very, this is very concerning to me as this program is in effect, yet we still have not had our hearing or a hearing date, Steenek said. This whole process deserves a full and complete review by an independent third party to ensure the process has been flaw-free and free of any improper outside influences. <coughs> mm -hmm. While some stages uh, began allowing medical marijuana in the well, some states, while some states began allowing medical marijuana in the late 1990s, federal laws prohibited most research into the drug. That's ugh. It's not a surprise. I'm just still upset about this whole thing. Uh, early stage clinical studies have started in the last two years, including several in New York, but results remain years off. The research has on also only focuses on a select few forms of the drug, meaning uh, wider medical applications require further study. Some hospitals, including two of New York's largest, remain noncommittal as they seem to be awaiting clinical results to insulate 
their physicians from controversy and legal troubles. NYU uh, Langana, yeah. Uh, Langana Medical Center officials say that they are establishing a workflow for clarifying for certifying eligible patient, patients. Montefiore's 15 neurologists aren't recommending marijuana yet. And Hot, the top neurologist, says it might be another year until clinical results support them participating. It's, it's really a very challenging aspect when patients are asking for something and they've heard stories that this medical marijuana works and you have to be the one that has to explain why we're waiting for the data that proves that it works and it's, and it's safe, Hot said. Similar stances at large hospitals affects hundreds of doctors and thousands of patients. Healthcare leaders say many hospitals and universities are reluctant to participate because it would endanger federal research grants. Meckler, the Buffalo doctor, disagreed with waiting for clinical studies to finish. He pointed to international research into marijuana's medicinal uses as sufficient. The United States, he said, has set unobtainable standards for researchers because of the federal laws and policies limiting marijuana studies. The mistake that there is a lack of clinical research is the mistake of our government, he said. Piperato, the uh, Thiel's internist and mother, hasn't been able to even locate marijuana doctors. She is not alone. While just 400 physicians have registered in the program, the state has refused to release a, re- release a list of participating doctors' names publicly. Health department officials say they plan to share an internal list among health care professionals to allow them to refer eligible patients, although there is no guarantee uh, or legal requirement that a, doctor, um, that a doctor opposed to the drug would share the information with a patient. New York and 21 other states don't publicly list marijuana doctors. Authorities typically can safely and Uh, site safety and security concerns. By contrast, New York has searchable websites to find names, addresses, and other details about doctors offering methadone and other controlled substances used in addiction treatment. Uh, Piperato questions the safety risk of uh, releasing marijuana doctors' names uh, publicly. There's always this uh, nebulous idea of people who are drug-seeking and that they go to doctors who would provide them with provide them with those drugs that are sought after with street value. But the way the New York program is set up, there is no risk of miracle cannabis, medical cannabis being uh, on the street, she said. Doctors won't be handing medical marijuana in New won't be handling medical marijuana in New York because it is sold at dispensaries controlled by strict security measures. Some companies um, all right, and we've got our caller, uh, Ken Folks, on the line. So we'll be coming back to this story in a moment. Hello. Oh. All right. Uh, Ken will be hopefully calling uh, back uh, in a moment. All right. Okay. So uh, some comp- some companies and nonprofits, however. Uh, have started uh, businesses and websites to connect marijuana patients to doctors nationally. They typically... All right. Hello. Hello. Hi. Can you hear me? I have you on speaker. I'll take you off. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. 
I'm sounding pretty clear? Yeah, you're sounding very clear. Thanks for calling in, Ken. Oh, thank you, dear, for having me. Wow. What an amazing day it is today. Yes. What a great day to um, just hear your voice, too. You're our sunshine, honey. Oh. Uh. Oh. Oh, it's the truth. It's the truth. You're, you're too kind. Yes. Oh. So, uh, yeah, we can we can get started, and it's pretty much a, an open forum to to discuss. Yay! I always I always uh, talk about the the mic at Perch and how wonderful it is, and how I've met so many uh, wonderful people there, and oh. just the the artists who come in from out of town, especially just the connections that yeah. are made in that space. So I wanted to thank you so much, you and Blackberry, for providing that space and creating that space and keeping it going through through the years. Oh goodness, you know. Um, and it's not that I don't take compliments very well. I love reciprocity. And so reciprocity in this instance is me saying, thank you very much. I really appreciate you saying that because it is a, a labor of love. Um, you know, every time we meet on Tuesday, I fund it personally myself and, um, I tithe. I consider it my tithe. I also have to say that we accept donations and it's not just monetary donations and every single week there's at least one person who says well let me just whatever i have let me give it so i want to be clear about that that this is this is a community effort yes and also in terms of reciprocity the love that we give to each other is that's a shared space you know like we create that space you are such an enormous part of the kind of healthy um, reality that's created there. When you come in and you get on the mic and you're clear this is transformative, this isn't a performance, and you just begin speaking to your family, speaking to your tribe about the things that actually matter, that's medicine. That's medicine. We can't get that in popular media, popular news media, even um, a lot of independent news sources are going the way of whatever they feel will get them ratings. Yes. And so the space that we create, we create together. Yes. You understanding the power of having this radio station, right? Yeah. Being at Mutiny, you understand that we've got to have some spaces that are not dominated by this ulterior motive to rebuild the kind of hierarchical structure that is tearing us all as individuals and as a collective into tiny pieces of nothingness absolutely like you get it yeah so thank you for the compliment and thank you for making it what it is and for building this amazing rainbow global rainbow community yeah um you know and thank everybody who comes every tuesday Uh, we have people who come from places as far as brazil oh my gosh we have um folks i didn't know that folks knew about us in amsterdam and um, the beauty of, and I don't think it's the internet per se that makes that happen. I really think it's word of mouth. Yeah, absolutely. Like when I, that's crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like we meet every week and for us it's like coming home and chilling in the living room and just being real with each other. It's like what a functional family is supposed to look like. It's not about two point whatever children and having one family pet and a mother and a father yes. we don't understand that definition of the family unit we yeah. understand a living breathing healthy unit and somehow we 
we share information about that space that we're all creating together the same way that you would talk about what a sibling's doing. Yes. You know, like, hey, my sibling is about to um, embark on this amazing journey, and I'm just really proud of my sibling. And if you happen to be in the same space or nearby in close proximity, go say hello. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> right? Absolutely. We don't Facebook, God bless them. But, you know, <laughs> this, is, this is so much stronger, so much um, more authentic. So we get people who come and already know. Yeah, I'm visiting from, um, oh gosh, there was someone who came from Switzerland, and they came with their child who had been to the open mic once before mm -hmm. and heard this, in, this impactful share and couldn't actually share it because they felt that, you know, just it's not, and we never say that that's how the space is created in terms of sanctuary that people should be careful about how they share, et cetera. We're clear somehow about that. Yes. So, yeah, the parent was told, you just have to come. Mm -hmm. When you come to visit me, you just have to come and see it for yourself. I can't tell you. Yeah. So we get, we get parents. Jamal brought his, his mom. Oh, yes. You know? Yes. And honored her in the space. And she was everybody's mama on Tuesday. Yes everybody's mama you know how we have profanity and we curse because we groan yeah and we were all apologizing <laughs> excuse me ma'am <laughs> sorry ma'am i loved it i love it and we also had our youngest member thomas brought um their son mm -hmm. s-u-n who is eight years old oh. going on nine so in this space, it's the multi-generational experience and expression of what a tribe is supposed to look like. Yes. I find... When it's at its healthiest. Yeah. I find at, at times people tend to spend time with people like around the same age group, but if we do more intergenerational, spend more time with like folks um, older and younger, there's so much more learning that can happen. I agree. I completely concur. I, I, I can't even express to you how important it is to start to recreate the, the mindfulness that takes place when you know that you're in a space with elders and youth. Yes, absolutely. Uh, one thing that so, you... Oh, go ahead. Yes. No, oh, you, apologies. You oh, first. Oh, no, no, no. Oh. <laughs> um, we, we were talking Please. a bit before you're, you're speaking about on, on Tuesday, just in terms of like, and also just today, like getting rid of the hierarchical uh, way of being. And we've talked about like lateral leadership and just how it's, it's everyone, everyone's a leader. And I yeah. was hoping you could talk more about that for folks oh, who might not goodness. be familiar with that idea. Okay. Yes. Um, so a large part of the competitive mindset that we at some point in our development as a species decided looks more like the bully winning mm -hmm. <laughs> like the bullies win um, actually doesn't benefit the collective nope that's not the way that nature unfurls um, we are acting in in conflict with nature our worldview 
especially within this notion of the American dream, mm-hmm. unfortunately is just um, a reiteration of an earlier pathology. So it would be akin to the family that has a really abusive adult in the household, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and because that's all that they've ever known, yes, everyone sort of falls in line to keep that abusive parent from, you know, enacting punishment or or um, abuse. And once you take out that that um, notion or that concept of this one abusive leader. And instead, everyone sees themselves as a divine being with something to offer in a leadership capacity. Mm-hmm. You, people have an opportunity to express um, their genius, their love, in ways that they can't when there's one person who's assumed to be the leader. Yes. Right? Yes. Because that leader's word is final. That leader maintains the majority of the resources and beats them out to everyone else. When you have horizontal leadership, for example, um, I'm a parent, Mm -hmm. and I was always um, cautioned to make certain that my children knew who was in charge. Mm. You know, like it was overwhelming how often, and these are strangers, like wherever, oh, yeah, you know, make sure you let your children know who's in charge. And I I would always respond with, divine is in charge, and each of us are divine. So we'll, we'll communicate, and we'll figure it out. But I'm not going to oppress their divinity with mine, because that actually makes, that degrades my divinity. Yes. What divine being seeks to oppress or usurp someone else's divinity? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So um, the, the notion of horizontal leadership exists in several indigenous tribes. However, there, there's pathology in a lot of different ways that our species expresses um, fear, because I believe a lot of our pathologies are fear-based. Oh, yeah. Fear of death. Yep. Fear of the unknown. Yep. Fear of lack of love. Fear of abuse, you know, like the, the recurrence of abuse. So with all of the trauma that exists worldwide, and I do believe that we do, we feel energy. Yes. It's already documented that um, in the same way that there, there's that um, notion of, um, what's it called, uh, muscle memory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I believe that there's, there's a way that we trigger each other. Oh, so it's yeah. like dominoes. And we have to be aware of the triggering within ourselves, and we also have to start negotiating practices to um, address the triggering. Mm-hmm. And also to let someone else know if it's their trigger and not yours. Yes. So for that to happen, everyone has to see themselves in a leadership position. I have to understand that I, I'm responsible. I'm responsible for acknowledging my triggers because you're not immediately in my head, Roman. Mm-hmm. I need to be brave enough to get help if I don't even understand what's in my head. Yeah. So one of the other things that's important in terms of horizontal leadership is um, collective self-care. Yes. Yep. And making certain that there are resources available for us to really um, move into our divine leadership role 
by being clear about where we need some support, yeah. where we need to grow. So on Tuesdays, that's, that's essentially what we're doing, and we're doing it um, organically. We do work with therapists. We are blessed to have some amazing people who have been researchers in various areas, right? And, and they come through and give us um, accolades, actually, for somehow figuring these things out, just figuring it out. And I do believe it's because we come with an intention of love and of accountability. And it organically turns into um, progressive practice. Yes. So um, if there's anything at all that we do in, in our lifetimes, you know, Blackberry and I are same page about this, and you and other people who are also, once again, co-hosts because we all are, are creating this space, I believe we are clear that we all are kinfolks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We all are kindred. We're all in this together. We're all in this together, and you're my kindred. And even when we disagree about things, Mm -hmm. oh, it's so beautiful to see how we manage it. Yeah. And find resolution. We have folks who come to the open mic in pain. Oh yeah. And the way that we understand how to help someone. Um, protect themselves and others I just yeah I just bow down to everyone who comes and creates the space with us everyone and I also believe that a large part of um, collective self-care is is, um, accountability to the collective yes there's got to be a clear understanding of accountability to the collective and I must share that um Last week, Tuesday, do you mind if I bring this up? This is triggering. I don't want to be triggering. So if you would rather that I not, I will not. Um, we can, and we I can, can just keep it general. We can, we can talk about it a little bit, but maybe like leave out names. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, as our family loves to spend time with each other, usually after the Tuesday night open mic, we continue to move through the world outside of the sanctuary space that we've created yeah. um, at 440 Grand. And it, it's been our practice heretofore for all of us to travel together, you know? And um, that one moment when we thought that it, it's comfortable, that the world is, is understand. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a very direct and immediate response from certain segments of the world that they haven't been advancing with us. Yeah. And it brought up a very, it brought up two very important points. Um, and this is all around the issue of a basic right to use a toilet. Yep. Something so basic. Yep. Everybody pees. Yep. Everybody pees. Anyone, whether you pee into a bag because, you know, I have lupus and there are certain truths around what that means with my kidney health, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, there are ways in which we create politics around our genitalia that are obscene. Mm-hmm. 
right? And we want to have discussions under the guise of protecting people that actually are very obscene. They're obscene. Oh, yeah. And they, um, they're, they're also illegal. Yeah, and they do so, more harm than good. They don't do yeah. any good. They do just harm. And, and, I, it's, and it's, um, it's contradictory. Yes. To say, I want to protect people from other people's genitalia by looking at your genitalia. Oh, yeah. Right? I want to keep people who are, like, genitalia-focused out of the wrong bathroom by being focused on your genitalia. Yep. It's just, that's contradictory. So any thinking person would say, how about everyone just mind their genitalia? Yep. <laughs> and yep. you tell me that this is the bathroom you want to use, that's the bathroom you use. Yep. And because in California, legally, you have, I have, we have, everyone has the right to use the bathroom that makes sense to them. Yes. Anyone who would block or seek to, seek to obstruct someone from using a bathroom, a public toilet, is the person who I'm worried about. Yeah. I'm not worried about who I'm in the bathroom with. I'm worried about the person who's trying to check people's genitals. Yes. Who's trying to say, well, your genitals don't match this, and you present this way in my mind, and therefore you need to use this bathroom. That doesn't make any sense to me. No. So um, two things came out of that trauma, because it was violent in the sense that um, I think that there's a huge degree of sexual repression and transference and projection that happens, and that's aggressive. Yes. Nobody entering the bathroom was thinking about the stuff that the people concerned about folks entering the bathroom were thinking about. Yep. So I learned that we should not assume that we are still safe. Mm -hmm. We should not make that assumption. We should continue to fight. We should continue to be present for each other. Yeah. And right now, with gentrification kicking everyone's butt in the Bay Area, the people who are affected the most egregiously are queer people of color. Yes. Who are artists. Yes. Like, let's just break it all the way down. Yeah. Who are trans. Yep. Who are trans women. Mm-hmm. Let's break it all the way down. Yeah. And so we have to be clear as LGBTQQIA folks that we have to watch each other's back. Yeah. And we have to start with the people who are the most vulnerable, not the people who have the most privilege, because yep. there are a lot of privileged queer folks yep. in our community. And there are different intersections of privilege. Mm-hmm. I went to Stanford University. Ding, privilege. I am black, two-spirited. I am cisgendered female in terms of presentation that's what my doctor would tell you as a two-spirit i don't relate to my genitalia as my gender you know i I don't get that that's my sex my gender is two-spirit my gender is spirit however i understand all of the ways that oppression trickles down and i can still say that i have the privilege of having gone to an institution like stanford and what that meant and what it continues to mean for me Mm -hmm. so we each have to as queer folks be clear about our forms of privilege and then figure out how we can support each other. Yes. Starting with the people who have the least. Yes. I'm saying a lot. I apologize if I'm not pausing. Oh, no, no, (laughs) please keep going. There's a lot of stuff happening. Oh, yeah. First and foremost, we have to stick together and we have to look at ourselves carefully. We need to be 
Our self-assessment shouldn't be a critique to tear us down. It should be a critique to figure out where our strengths are and how we can lend them to each other. Yes. So that's number one. And number two, goodness, child, goodness. Okay, so we're getting thrown out in every corner of the Bay Area. Yep. We need to figure out where we're going. Yeah. Not all of us are going to be able to stay. Those of us who stay provide a space for those of us who have to come back to visit mm-hmm. because we need everybody in this. And then let's stop folks from having to leave by yeah. supporting each other. Yeah. We need to look into the land trust. There's something called the Oakland Land Trust. Mm-hmm. There isn't any reason why all of us privilege because there are some. I have Stanford privilege. I don't have Stanford money, though. I'm mm-hmm. just saying. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay? Let's be real. My little tithe that I get. I put into the community every Tuesday. I'm happy to do it. Yeah. There are folks in our community, our queer community, who have a lot of wealth, and they're very comfortable. And it's not because they are evil people that they are unaware of the fact that they could be helping. It's that they live with a certain degree of privilege, which is a blinder. That's actually a disadvantage for them. Yes. So it's up to us and them. It's up to us to say, we need you to take those blinders off. It's going to be a little painful because when you haven't looked at the bright sunlight in years, the glare that we're under all the time, it might burn your eyes a little in the beginning, but trust me, you don't get used to it. We did. (laughs) Yep. And now that you can see clearly, we need you to make a donation to a land trust for queer people. Mm. And we need to start with the folks that are the most egregious first. Trans sisters should not be put out, should not have to suffer, because we already know that we're not, we're not the beloved when it comes to um, law enforcement. Mm-hmm. We are the targeted. Yeah. So when we know that our trans sisters have a life expectancy, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. When we know that our black trans sisters are endangered, when we even speak in those in those terms, mm-hmm. then what we need to do is start looking at where we put our money. Yeah. And we also have to move past this feeling that the people who have privilege should maintain privilege financially. Like mm. the folks who control all of our voices, who yes. feel comfortable being the default, they're living within a certain degree of disadvantage that they don't understand because they only have to look at situations from maybe two or three perspectives. Mm -hmm. What they need to do is feel okay with giving up the reins so that the folks who are looking at a situation from 15 or 16 perspectives can move into a position of power. Yes. And we need to stop seeing, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, we need to stop seeing white queer media as the default to speak for all queer people. Mm Mm-hmm. There isn't any reason why we should. In my opinion, if I'm going before a judge and I'm saying, you know what, judge, here's a situation that has been fouled for far too long, and we need someone who really understands justice to look at this and make this right finally because we're tired of being sick. We're tired of, you know, the injustices. I don't want a judge that can only look at a situation from two or three perspectives. Thank you very much. Yeah. I would like a judge who can look at it from 15. Yes. That's who I would want to speak up for all of us if I really, truly believe that we all deserve the same rights. Now, if I believe that my rights are more important than your rights, 
then of course I want a judge that will all the time, or at least most of the time, see it from a limited number of perspectives, primarily my own, because that would be all that matters to me. So we've got to ask ourselves, we've got to do that deep work individually to ask, what kind of person am I? <laughs> Am I truly a divine being who respects that everyone has the right to be a divine being and I should respect that in them? Mm -hmm. Or are we the type of people who have settled into the hierarchy, settled into the whiteness as default, mm. settled into the, um, the addiction of wealth, mm. the pathology of wealth and all of the violence that follows it? Like right now in Oakland, we have more crime. Oh, my goodness. And, and a lot of it isn't the kind of crime that we're accustomed to. You know, like people just are aggressing against each other in cars. Mm. I, was driving, um, I was driving this morning, and someone almost ran over someone. Jeez. People are becoming mean-spirited and self-centered. Yes. So when we talk about progress, and we talk about wealth in Oakland as a form of progress, we have to ask ourselves, why do we have to become a military zone in order to have progress? Is that really progress? No, it's the opposite. It's regression. I, f I feel that here in San Francisco, certainly, uh, especially like the, the unkind, like the lack of kindness, certainly, and it, it f I feel like it's contagious. Like the, the fewer the people that look each other in the eye, the, the more... It, it's more it spreads and also mm -hmm. just the reliance of some folks on law enforcement to either deal with whatever personal problems or not even personal problems uh earlier in the show we're talking about the criminalization of the homeless and mm. it's like going to the state in order to there's systemically there's uh an inequality and instead of addressing it and the roots of it uh, people end up calling in the cops to like, oh, I don't want to see homeless people. So then people end up calling the cops to the, the idea of like out of sight, out of mind, instead of actually figuring out a way for people to have homes. Yes, exactly. 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 And there are people in every segment, every grouping, every profession in our society that has been exposed to the pathology of greed. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> greed and violence and aggression, greed and aggression, because if you're greedy and you want something that don't belong to you, of course you're gonna have to be aggressive to get it. Yes. The two really work in tandem, mm. right? Yeah. And so until we start to look at the pathology associated with the rage disorders and the greed disorder, that is just replete in this country. It's imbued systemically. Individual people have been um, breastfed on it in mm. this country. It's actually now a large part of the American dream. And I'm not so certain that um, the American dream from the, its inception was intended to exist in, in real time for real people. It was, in my opinion, it was an ideal yes. for a very select group of folks. Yeah. And so we're still bowing down to something that didn't actually serve a purpose that was realistic. Until we start to say, hey, this is existing everywhere. So there are, in law enforcement, there are some folks who are whistleblowers mm -hmm. that are doing 
the right thing. Yes. Right? Yeah. In every profession, you have people who have the opportunity to respect their own divinity or to disrespect it completely. And so I can say that in every segment, in every profession in this country, if we truly are proud of this nation, then we have to go back and start telling the truth. One of the things that I would love to see us do in this country, and I think we're moving toward it, um, is, of course, to acknowledge that many of these isms are pathologies that, that display as symptoms of hypertension, right, mm-hmm. um, diabetes, um, in addition to the more obvious that we've seen, which is just folks getting shot by folks who should be protecting them yes. in the street. Um, so, you know, the, the notion of blackness as the beast, blackness as the savage, blackness as the criminal, that's a pathology. That's, that's based on a paranoia that isn't founded, actually, when a 12-year-old carrying a toy gun, you know, is then the, the reason why black children can't play with toy guns in the street. Mm-hmm. But everybody else can. Yeah. So, you know, it's, um, or even if you're walking through Walmart and you just picked up a gun, yep. right? Like yep. the brother who was shot in Walmart who just picked up a gun because he was going to purchase it. Yeah. There's, there's a way that we have to get all of those um, entities that are responsible for acknowledging where, where the mental illness and the practices of, um, of healthy growth can take place, like where we need the work, and then what do we need to do? What does the work look like? So NIH, CDC, APA, the American Psychological Association, has been asked repeatedly over many years by black psychologists. There are groups that have, you know, approached the APA to ask, when are we going to formally acknowledge racism as a form of and there's always been a hedging on it like only if it's extreme but that extremity the definition of what is extreme is based upon what people think is the norm Hmm. so right now with all of these images and the truth of the kind of aggression that we're seeing even within the realms of folks who are supposed to be there to support a peaceful resolution we're seeing all of this, and that's becoming a norm for us. Mm-hmm. So at some point, we have to say, maybe we need to have a standard that's based upon someone's right to be. Mm. How about that? Yeah, yeah. And I think we're getting there. Um, Harvard Medical School, uh, actually several medical schools, had a moment of silence where they all laid down. Harvard Med did it, Johns Hopkins. I think it was Johns Hopkins that did it, actually, that started. It was... Um, a year and a half ago now, maybe. I'll have to get all of that info, and I can put it on a website and send that to you. However, there were several medical schools throughout the United States who participated in this moment of recognition of black lives. Mm -hmm. And they laid down for 14 and a half minutes, and that was their, their action, asking the nation and asking all of those agencies that um, set the standard in terms of what we perceive as a health um, pandemic or an epidemic that needs some attention. Putting them all on alert. Nothing really happened. So Harvard Med last week, I believe it was, announced formally 
that all of these instances of police brutality and police violence are part of an epidemic. Mm -hmm. They're seeing an epidemic of violence that actually is a national health issue that we need to confront. Yes. So that's all great. That's great. What we also should do is ask ourselves, how can we then set forth some practices in every community throughout the United States so that we can address it? Because this isn't just an issue of law enforcement going crazy. Because as I said, there are a lot of law enforcers who are whistleblowers, who are very clear. They take their, they take their oath seriously. They believe in the role that they're playing. Mm -hmm. And when it gets out of line, they definitely say something about it. Um, and many of them are castigated by their own as a consequence of it. So oh, yeah. really stepping forward. Yeah. So I don't want to at any point berate those folks and yes. make them feel like, you know, everyone's against them because we honor them so much. Um, and there are other professions where there are people who are aggressing against people, too. Yeah. Violently so. Oh, yeah. They so, wear suits. Right? Exactly. Sometimes they're teachers. Yep. Sometimes, you know, they're physicians. Sometimes they're bus drivers. Sometimes they're just people who are just on the, on the street. The point is that we need to look at how aggression in this country is becoming such a norm that other folks <laughs> who are visiting yeah. are told that they might reconsider America as a vacation spot because it's just so violent. And yeah. it's not one particular group that's violent. It's the police are violent. They'll kill you. The black people are violent. They'll kill you. The white folks gone crazy. They're taking over public land with guns. They'll kill you. You know? So, like, all of these messages that are being sent out are being sent inward, too. Yeah. We're absorbing all of these. Yeah. True or not, we're absorbing it. So I thought, what if all across America, all of these community centers that we're paying for with our taxes, right? Mm -hmm. Could actually be wellness centers. Oh, yeah. Like in times of um, war, when the depression was raging, you know, it was really important to have community spaces, public community spaces where people could access resources. We have those spaces. We've had them for decades. There are community centers. So um, the same way that folks decided midnight basketball was going to be the solution for gang violence in the 80s, we need to say, hey, all of our community centers in every city throughout the United States is a safe haven for people. Mm -hmm. And we should create spaces for people to gain the practices so that they learn conflict resolution. Conflict yes. resolution would be awesome. Oh, yeah. If we started to really see that um, the way that we live together is largely dependent upon each individual having a shared responsibility. We could do that through community centers. We have potlucks. Everyone in the neighborhood comes out to the community center potluck, and we have an opportunity to problem solve, not problematize, but to actually be solution oriented. And there are lots of folks who need to get their practicum to become a therapist, to become different types of holistic health healers, right? Mm -hmm. Why couldn't they have their practicum through the community center? Yeah. So now we have someone who's a somatic, um, you know, healer who is in training 
right, mm -hmm. and need so many hours, and they're looking for opportunities to share their skill set, this would be the perfect space. Oh, yeah. They not only would gain the hours of experience, they could also be sharing the skill set with others. Yes. That sounds great. You know, it's what public education, it's what, um, you know, a lot of the public health agencies have been trying to kind of come together and provide. And I think that we need to stop depending so much on the institutions to do the work for us, oh, yeah. and the agencies to do the work for us, and go back to our communities, go back to our community centers, come together and say, wouldn't it be great if we learned conflict resolution? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be great if we learned how to actually meditate in all of the various ways that people meditate? There isn't just one way. Yeah. So anyway, more of my thinking, thinking. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> great. And getting back to what we were talking about. More of my rambling. Oh, no, no, it's great. Uh, one idea I was thinking about when you were talking about how we've become such a violent culture, I feel like especially in this country hasn't it always been violent and do you f i mean perhaps now people are maybe more aware of it due to social media um but hasn't there always been violence within the, this country yes and you know it's so difficult my mother is indigenous and black so my mother's my mother's father um uh chata indian and black man um only like five, four and a half, but in my mind is like seven feet tall. Mm -hmm. um, with indigenous blood and one of the most gentle beings that I ever encountered. Yeah. He was actually one of my mentors in terms of the way that I am in community and in tribe with others. Yes. Would say that we were a nation before the colonists came. Mm -hmm. So when we say that this nation is already has always been violent, his response, my mom's response, all of, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The native response is, this was a nation, actually, before the arrival of Columbus, even. Right. You know, and Benjamin Franklin examined a document that was native-created, a genius document called the Iroquois um, League of Nations Declaration, and large portions of that were used by him and the other quote-unquote founding fathers to figure out what liberty really looked like and actually imbued our, you know, declaration, et cetera, with some of those same thoughts. And so the principles of liberty, of justice, of equity, of equality existed in this nation before the hierarchy and the capitalist mindset that brought people over in chains, yeah. men, women, and children, and bred human beings of the same, your own brothers and sisters. We're all from the same species. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like we were sheep, cattle. Like something that we consume, some of us, which is another story altogether. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to talk about that on another show. Yep. Yes. Uh, how you are what you eat. Yes. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's been, like, even this notion of settlers. There's been a conversation in Oakland as gentrification is choo-choo-choo-choo-choo, trugging along and just kicking people out the way. There's been a question of, like, well, who's a traditional Oaklander and who's a settler? Hmm. And 
while these conversations were unfolding, my Ohlone brothers and sisters and bristers were like, hey, and bristers, by the way, that's brother, sister, two spirits. Mm-hmm. They were looking at the conversation unfolding like, all y'all are settlers. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Y'all settlers fighting each other. <laughs> so let's stop. Let's stop looking at it from the perspective of like, well, who was on the land first? Because we got you beat. Yeah. Let's talk about who actually is loving the land. Mm-hmm. Who is a steward yes. of the land? Yeah. Who is working in concert with the land? Yeah. Who is respecting what the resource that the land provides? means for all of us those are the questions that need to be asked not who is a settler but who is a steward yes that's what i ask so you know these are the types of things that go through my little brain when i'm like in the world and then when the world is quiet at 3 a.m and i'm just still up this is the beauty that i feel we all have and i just i've see it. I see us in this other um, solution-based reality. When I look at Black Lives Matter, no, who knew? Who would have thunk it? That we would have this amazing movement that is, um, once again, looking at leadership horizontally, mm-hmm. spread across the land. Spread a, not just the land, the world. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it took two it took three black women, two queer black women, mm-hmm. one hetero sister. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> and if they don't get any recognition at all for it, they're like, whatever. Yeah. We just want you to be clear that this is what we mean when mm-hmm. we use the hashtag. Mm-hmm. And so when you use it, we're going to assume that this is what you mean. And if it isn't what you mean, you need to understand that this is what we meant. It's, it's just a different... It's a more equitable, more, um, it's healthier. It's just healthier. Yeah. And that happened immediately. And so, um, have you ever heard of the 13 grandmothers? I have not. Okay, that'll be another show. <laughs> People who can see from multiple perspectives. Do you hear me? Yeah. Multiple perspectives. A trans man mm-hmm. has a perspective mm-hmm. that we need that we desperately need so that we have the kind of balance, that we have the kind of vision that we're just being held back from. And it's keeping us in the same abused and hurting space. Yes. So, um, yeah, I love that. I love that you asked me to be on the show. I'm sorry that I talked for like four to five minutes. Oh, the, the the point is to is to hear your voice. So it was really it was really great to to have you on the show. And there's of course there's like so much to talk about. I feel like it could go on for for hours and hours. Uh, well, let's do it on it. Let's let's do a Tuesday session for half an hour at the open mic. Yeah. Um. You know, maybe we should do that. We should start off from six to six thirty and. Anyone who wants to come and we, each week we have a different theme. Mm-hmm. However, since you were the brainchild behind this, I would say that um, this is your thing. I'm just going to offer the space to you. Sure. And I can help with the technology. Okay. Very cool. But you're, you're, the, you're the boss. 
<laughs> I, I'm uncomfortable with that word, but I'll 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 accept it. <laughs> oh, I adore you. Oh, I adore you too. And again, it's so good to hear your voice and just the the ideas that uh, I feel like a lot of folks need to hear. Um, thank you for bringing them mm-hmm. about and making them very feel very clear and very tangible. Because I I feel like there's a lot of people who recognize that the way things are set up are not things are not okay. And I feel there's not necessarily like hopelessness, but there's an idea, not necessarily knowing how to act or what to do. So by Mm. being able to like put the, these ideas into practice is, is huge. So thank you very Mm. much for just clarifying uh, ways that we can work to make things better. Mm, Thank you, dear. And having access to amazing people like you and folks like Robbie Clark over at Just Cause um, you know, just there's so many people, critical resistance. Um, I encourage people to get to know the social justice groups that have been doing the work, mm-hmm. like putting themselves literally on the front line for housing, for folks who are being disenfranchised and pushed around, for folks whose um, human rights, not just civil rights, human rights are being violated. Um, and have been doing this for years. Yes. I encourage people to um, visit the Black Lives Matter website. You can always come to Spectrum Queer Media as well. Um, come to spectrumqueermedia.com, and we will list all of these amazing resources. So when I throw out these ideas, it's also within the context of knowing that these are the kind of folks that are part of my cohort. Yes. They're part of your cohort. Yeah. They're our community cohort. Yes. All we have to do is step up and say, I want to be accountable. Yes. And they have they have something for us to do. Yes. Excellent. Oh, and, oh for our, our white allies, there was one other thing. Um, allyship is not something that the ally defines. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to say something very briefly, and then I'm going to get off. Um, There are some amazing white allies who have been doing their work around white privilege. The White Privilege Conference is coming up, et cetera. I appreciate that. I feel that it's really important for allies never, ever, ever, ever to make that difficult call to the police on a black body or a brown body, given where we at, we're at, rather. Yes where we're at now yes that they should definitely align themselves with organizations like black lives matter bay area and other organizations um cat brooks is an amazing amazing being amazing spirit and is also very accessible you know there are several people who are doing the work who can negotiate around safety Mm -hmm. in some of these instances where people who call themselves allies are placing us at risk for the um, state violence that we've already seen looks very much like executions yes. and people um, accidentally hanging themselves in jail. <sighs> yeah. So if you are an ally, I'm going to say it right now, if you are a white ally or you profess to be a white ally and you've ever been in an altercation with a black or brown person and you or you have, you yourself or you have encouraged someone who is not a part of the kind of movement and the understanding of what actually happens, like even legally mm-hmm. around um, state violence and black and brown bodies and what our rights should be and what they aren't, don't make that call. Yes. 
make that call as someone who is not an ally. Do not continue to call yourself an ally because you are not our ally in that instance. Yes. An ally would have those resources. If you want to become an ally, then definitely go to the White Privilege Conference, gain the kind of real information that you need so that when you're in an instance like that and you're torn, that you have someone you could call and say, check it out, this is unfolding, and I need to make sure that someone who is sensitive and aware of what actually is going on will be there to protect this black and brown body, even though I might feel threatened in this moment. Yes. That's, the, that's what allyship looks like. When young brothers and sisters of all ethnicities went down to um, southern USA, good old USA, to protect the rights of black folks to vote mm -hmm. and for us to have access to education. Yes. Those freedom riders, many of them signed their wills. 18-year-olds mm. signing their wills, stealing off in the middle of the night, some of them not even letting their parents know because they knew that their parents would not allow them to go because it would mean the possibility of death. Yes. That's what allyship freaking looks like. Yes. It's a war term. Yeah. So I really appreciate that people using the term use it wisely. Mm -hmm. Don't just throw it out. Don't yeah. just throw it out. It's akin to being an advocate, but even more so. It means that you will literally jump in front of me and take a bullet. So please don't do that. Anyone who's using the term, you can say that you're learning to be an ally, but please don't delude people and say that you are one because yes. it's very confusing and possibly dangerous for us. Who would believe it? Thank you for allowing me to say that. Yeah, thank you for saying it. Thank you. No worries. Thank you. Uh, I love you, dear. I love you too. I look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah, I will. <laughs> Thanks again for calling in and for everything you've shared. Sure. I'll see you. Are you yeah. coming tonight? I'm winning an award. Oh, that's oh awesome. Oh my gosh. Oh, I never oh, win an award. <laughs> that's excellent. So, where, where about is this uh, taking place? It's at Soma Art. And it starts at 6.30, and it's free to the community, to anyone, free to the public. It is the Generations LGBTQQIA Leadership Award, and I'm getting a Lifetime Leadership Award. And I'm so, so happy, not because I'm award-focused, I'm not an award whore, because if I was, and I, I apologize for using that term, actually, please, strip that from my mind. I shouldn't have said that. I'm not someone who is feeling like that's the only thing that matters yeah. and that I'm living for it. But I have to say that this one actually does matter because the community made this happen. Oh, wonderful. So well, I really appreciate it. Congratulations. Thank you, dear. Thank you very much. <sighs> off. All right. Well, thanks again. Uh, yeah. And, um, yeah, I have difficulty sometimes, uh, uh, ending uh, conversations uh, on on the air. Um, but again, thank you so much, and uh, we will we will talk soon. And breathe. And breathe. Just yeah, breathe. very important. Very very important. I love you. All right, love you too, Ken folks. Stay blessed. I'll see you soon. All right, take care. Thank you for all you do. Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye. Oh, so thanks again uh, to Ken folks for, for calling in and for all that information at this, that discussion and also just a lot to think about, certainly. So uh, we're just about out of time here. I'll be playing some music. Uh, coming up next on Mutiny Radio will be Global Val with Women's Magazine. 
And uh, yeah, stay tuned. Uh, Meet New Radio tonight is uh, uh, Mike is here. There's also the, um, I can folks mention the event at Soma Arts. And there's also the Queer Open Mic at Modern Times Bookstore at 7 o'clock tonight. So there's a lot going on. And have everyone have a lovely weekend. And we'll be back next week. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love for what the world needs now is love sweet love no not just for some but for everyone lord we don't need another mountain there are mountains and hillsides enough to climb there Enough to cross, enough to last till the end of time. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just to love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some. But for everyone Lord, we don't need another meadow There are cornfields and wheat fields Enough to grow There are sunbeams and moonbeams Enough to shine Oh, listen, Lord, if you want to know Thank you.